Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Adam. I certainly can. And soon you should be able to see me in just a moment. There he hey. is. There he is. Now, do you prefer Tay or Adam? Uh, Tay, usually. I usually go by Tay for, for these things. Okay, cool. Good. All right. I, I use Zoom for both. So, uh, you know, let's say there, there's, a, there's a story there. There's a story there. Oh, yeah. I never know when I get on Zoom and do podcasts. Like, is the podcast just starting? Are we editing this? Is uh, because uh, I'll be having the podcast before the podcast. Be like, oh my gosh, we should have recorded all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Tay is not my government name. It's a name that I invented when I got the idea of creating a YouTube channel and a music brand uh, way back in 2007. So uh, time warp. I was in graduate school in Minneapolis uh, uh, pursuing a PhD in American studies, which is kind of like history. I'd done my undergrad out here where I am now in Washington state in communications and, uh, was not a very happy graduate student Just kind of bored with teaching, bored with research. I did music as a hobby. I would go around to open mics and sing in little cafes and YouTube came along and the winter is very cold in Minneapolis. I was sick of dragging my stuff out to, to go sing. So I'm like, why don't I just record in my living room and sing on YouTube? And I wanted a different name to do it because I thought I would still be finishing my PhD and going by Adam Bonner for papers and publications. Uh, so I invented this silly little name, Tay Zonde. But how did you come up with that? Um, you know, I, I, it was somewhat deliberate. I wanted something that... Uh, if someone heard it in conversation, they would know how it was spelled. Uh, I was actually entering potential names on Google in quotes because I wanted one that was not used before. I entered Tazon Day in quotes and it got zero results. So then I immediately claimed it as my YouTube channel name. Uh, back then, MySpace was the biggest thing. So I had MySpace Tazon Day and then Tazonday.com. Uh, and, and everywhere I could claim it. And yeah, I, I guess the rest they say is history. But it's funny when I came into more accidental public attention uh, and, and eventually moved to Los Angeles, I would be at parties where half of the people had been calling me Tay and the other half of the people had been calling me Adam. And so, you know, if the sides met later, I'd have some explaining to do. Like, no, no, no you're both right. I, uh, uh, Facebook makes me use Adam because for a while they're making you use your government name. And then I'm, I'm also Tay. So, uh, yeah. Did that feel good to you or was that confusing? It's like, well, which part of me am I becoming, especially out here in L.A.? Oh, no. no it was very confusing insofar as, um, I mean, I guess zooming back a little bit because I had the, the transition between those two moments of creating the YouTube channel and, and then eventually moving out to L.A. a year and a half older, uh, later, rather, um, is uh, I became accidentally famous. I had a viral video on YouTube. Uh, not right away. I kind of started just uploading 
uh, you know, little songs that I had, had done. I think the first YouTube video I uploaded, I was singing Swing Low Sweet Chariot and playing the piano uh, in a very low register. Uh, uh, and so it was kind of like, Swing Low Sweet Chariot. And, you know, as YouTube is known for, and the internet is known for, I got very honest comments saying, you know, uh, my ears are bleeding. This is terrible. <laughs> You have no future in music. Uh, terminate your channel. All of this uh, uh, feedback, and uh, I did. You know, I took some of that feedback, and that's how I ended up singing about an octave higher uh, in the baritone register rather than the bass register. And so, "Chocolate Rain" was a song that I really completed as an afterthought. Uh, YouTube had emailed me after many months on YouTube. I was not a big YouTuber. Uh, and they said they wanted to feature another song of mine on the front page. But this, this was ancient history back in the day when the front page was actually curated by editors right. mm. on YouTube. And uh, so that could make somebody's life if, they, if the editor emailed you and said, hey, we want to feature your other song. Uh, so another song I did, which is now somewhat forgotten, uh, uh, called Love, um, uh, which I did with a collaborator in Australia, they featured that on the front page. And I had been working on Chocolate Rain as a little side project. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this uh, because I wanted to double dip. I wanted to put it up on my YouTube channel so people who saw the other featured video might see this other Chocolate Rain video. And um, yeah, I wrote it in my mind as a ballad about institutional racism. But uh, it, at that time, uh, it was just a song and I, I, I put it up and nothing happened to it for about three months. Uh, someone posted it on dig.com, which is like what Reddit is today, a social bookmarking site. It came into attention there. Another site, which is uh, of both, you know, uh, a lot of headlines and somewhat ill repute, uh, 4chan picked it up and it became a joke there. And you know, lo and behold, it started to become a national news story. Uh, the first sense that I had that it was going to be a viral video was uh, 4chan uh, collaborated to prank call Tom Green, who was doing a, a, a late night show in his living room. And uh, yeah, the, the caller busts out singing, chocolate rain. And, you know, Tom Green being a good improv comedian, he uh, sands it and just kind of you know, says, chocolate rain, and, and slams the phone down. Uh, and, uh, you know, a couple of days later, it was featured on Carson Daly's late night show, which was in a, a traditional format in 2007 on NBC. And, and it kind of became a national news story. And I was not prepared in any way because i was a nerd in my living room but how could you be right. this didn't exist this kind of viral thing i mean you are you were a pioneer you I were mean, one I, of the pioneers i wondered if if viral was even a, a term that people used at that time you know like i mean to inadvertently create something that becomes viral like that it's 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 every musician's dream now i mean uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm at once curious about how that feels. And I'm so afraid to talk about it because I'm sure everybody that you speak to at all times is like, I don't know, can't see past chocolate rain. And I, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to like get to know you, you know? Yeah, no, it, it's so funny, you know, I, uh, cause we, we were uh, exchanging messages about this podcast and I was like, I don't have anything to promote or to, uh, to talk about now, but there's, uh, uh, you know, I have told kind of the, the, the story of my raw video a lot. Um, but yeah, you know, what was it like in those early moments? Cause it, it, the, the term viral video, I think it was starting to be used a little bit. And there were a couple other videos going viral at the time. Soldier boy had his crank that song. Um, about a month later, Chris Crocker had his Leave Britney Alone. Um, I was the friend, uh, the family friendly viral 
video, uh, you know, the one that YouTube felt comfortable getting behind is saying, hey, this is something that could only happen on YouTube. Because remember, YouTube was the new kid on the block at this time. MySpace was the biggest thing in social media. Facebook is, had just kind of opened up, so it wasn't just an, an internal network for colleges. So YouTube was kind of trying to find its place. And with Chocolate Rain, uh, you know, through some matter of luck, I uploaded it as a free MP3. Uh, the song Loops. So people were able to download it and sing their own parodies, sing their own versions in front of bedsheets. So thousands of people uploaded it, uh, uploaded their covers of Chocolate Rain, uh, sometimes in the meme of themselves being in front of a bedsheet. And some of them were well known, uh, John Mayer, Trey Cool. Um, so everyone was kind of replying to this Chocolate Rain video. And that sort of became a dynamic that became very significant on YouTube and establishing YouTube as a platform uh, because you know, the, the idea of sort of a, a something is going viral and then and other participation. Are, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in the moment of it going uh, viral, yeah, none of it was going viral for my intended meaning. And I sort of made a conscious choice uh, to not engage in any polemic aspect of it or corrective aspect and say, well, no, those joke lyrics aren't correct or it's not correct to laugh at it. I kind of had to go along with it because I ultimately created my YouTube channel to try and explore and figure out who I was. And I was still very much at the beginning of this process. I'm still on it, but in this moment. Um, and I knew that there was no way I could just fast forward uh, because I was in a moment of heat and really know who I was as a musician, as a person, uh, as a brand. Am I Adam? And I, am I Tay Zonde? Uh, and, yeah. And so I, I kind of just, uh, uh, I went along with a lot of different things. What like I don't, what I don't understand, Tan, going back to swing low, is that you read all these negative comments that would make most people go, that's it. I'm out. I'm not going to, but you go, okay, let me, let me work with this. How do you manage? How do you manage that? How do you not care about people's perceptions of you oh, I, or, yeah, or allow them? Yeah. It's interesting because I am very sensitive now. Um, I don't know if I've gotten sensitive as I've gotten older. I turned 40 last weekend, uh, but um, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Um, but uh, now I feel like it doesn't matter if there are a hundred positive comments or affirming comments, uh, you know, one hater, I will just feel so, so it'll be ruining my day. And I'll, I want to have a, an honest, vulnerable, good faith conversation with this person uh, to come to some, to uh, some coalition, some conciliation uh, with them. And, uh, you know, I, what I will say is the internet was different in 2007. Uh, because uh, it, in many ways, the internet that we see now, when content gets posted, uh, we are forced into these silos of recommendation engines. And the economy of the internet today is a loyalty economy. If you are a content creator, you get rewarded for that. Uh, they pay attention to your audience's behavior, and. Uh, they reward you with views, with organic reach, if that audience behaves in a way that's good for their business. Um, and mm. I know this is a long point. It's going to circle back to the haters. Uh, but in 2007, <laughs> instead of being a not a, a loyalty or pardon me, a, a, a an economy based on audience loyalty, it was more of a novelty economy. 
uh, things that were novel went viral. It's like, oh, there's this guy who, you, you know, he uh, uh, has a deep voice. He uh, uh, yeah, he uh, moves like Mr. Bean. He kind of uh, uh, sings like Barry White. This is interesting. This is novel. And when the Internet was a novelty economy, I feel like negative comments, they stung less because the platform was not trying to pay attention to those people and create a silo for them to fall into. Uh, because now I feel like whenever there is opposition to something that I do or whenever there is, uh, um, and I, I, I hate to use the term canceled mob or, there is, or that type of thing, there is more of a sense that, oh, it's people coming in from a Discord who don't like an aspect of my song or what I'm doing or people coming in from a subreddit. Uh, whereas uh, the internet in 2000 seven and even before that because i remember the internet in the 90s um uh it was just kind of more you know you see the odd hater you see the odd uh um yeah, uh, comment youtube was more the wild wild west then i mean this was the back in the day when uh yeah youtube thumbnails people would game youtube <laughs> thumbnails and you'd, you'd search for a youtube video about a particular topic uh and you'd see a bunch of thumbnails that were trying to get you to click them and uh, YouTube has evolved a lot. Uh, the, the internet has evolved insofar as we can see it more on our mobile phones now, whereas it was primarily desktop uh, back in the day. But, um, you know, some of the points that I'm getting at inartfully uh, are captured, if anybody wants to read it, Jonathan Roch's book, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge, about how the way these algorithmic search engines and, and the algorithmic internet has changed the way that we experience uh, other people, the way we experience the content that they post. And so, yeah, I think it, it, it's very tough now because in many ways the internet is a train wreck economy that is always just <laughs> really, the platforms are just um, you know, uh, uh, salivating to blow up anybody who's creating a controversy or a train wreck because that drives engagement and that drives monetization. Whereas 2007, it, it wasn't quite that same way. Um, Say the name of that book again. Really, really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, the, the book, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan Roch. Uh, Roch, I think I'm saying his name correctly. I may be butchering it, but... <laughs> Janko, I interrupted you before. What were you going to say? Can you possibly remember? Yeah, I was just going to say, going like circling back to the 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 notion of of the the you know hate or the uh, the bully bullying comments. It, it felt it felt more impersonal at that time when that video was out versus now when when people are 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 already subscribed to you or they're going to you for your content. It's not just they're happening upon it through this crazy random circumstance, but they're they're it, it feels it feels targeted when they're saying mean or hurtful things. Well, yeah, and, and in fact it is because if somebody is saying a mean or hurtful thing now in 2022, the platform is looking, monitoring that behavior of what they are typing. It's it's literally uh, putting the words the hate words that they are typing into a machine learning architecture and using that to predict the type of content that that person is likely to watch that will keep them on that platform. So it is looking yeah. to become a machine that confirms their biases, that confirms their prejudices, that confirms their uh, worst suspicions. And this is how it works for all of us. Like these are machines 
that try to keep us in an information silo uh, where our worst biases are confirmed and affirmed. And yeah, that's very different than uh, you know, the, what I call the pre-algorithmic internet uh, as it existed in 2007, 2008, and, and before, um, where yeah, you did have to work harder to find the information that you actually wanted. But the dividend of that, the civic dividend, the mental health dividend, uh, the social dividend, uh, is that you also kind of encountered viewpoints and noise, so to speak, uh, that was different than your own confirmation bias. And the process of having to, to sort through and, and access that signal amongst the noise uh, is actually, yeah, I, I think that has a mental health benefit. I wanted to ask you, Tay, would you, because I know that you started in Minneapolis uh, in small clubs, uh, and would you say that Minneapolis is to uh, 2007 internet as LA is to the internet now? Ooh, <laughs> uh, that, that's so interesting. Um uh, I mean, I, I love Minneapolis. Uh, I actually just did a, uh, it's a long interview. I, I type any of my interviews that end up in magazines now because I've done too many phone interviews where uh, they try to translate what I said. I'm like, wait, that's not what I said. So it's like, it's, it's like a 4,000 word interview with, uh, I believe the magazine is uh, Racket that I did a couple months ago. I read uh, it. Racket. I read it. And I, I, yeah, I read it. I read it. But yeah, you. <laughs> I read it. And I just in terms of Minneapolis, let me read this. You said the Twin Cities are imbued with a wonderful Midwestern cultural zeitgeist that defies the ordinary. Being non plussed is high art in Minnesota. I love that. There might be something about brutal winters that necessitates chilling out and friend zoning everyone, but in a way that fuses calm acceptance with personal boundaries. Now, tell me more about nonplussed, being can nonplussed, I, can I, being high art. Can I quickly interject here and, and just yeah. say that mom mom read me that and now meeting you i'm i'm so charmed by by your in, intelligence and affability it's 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 really incredible um i i, I and, and and also the the work that you you seem to be doing i i don't know is it intentional work that you're doing on regarding like studying that the, the trends of 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 social media and 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 of youtube and the platform yeah it's interesting i uh I wouldn't say it's deliberate. Um, yeah, I do call myself a recovering academic, uh, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, um, it, it's interesting. I, I feel like it, it's odd though, because my cerebral writing, my thoughtful writing, I feel like I have struggled to have that connect with to find an audience. Frankly, um, yeah, there's definitely an audience around Tayson Day for being a happy singing experience i am happy like santa claus that i sing and 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 that's what it's like if somebody you know bumps into me in public and they're like oh my gosh i i watched your video in junior high or uh it, and you give it to them yeah. i saw you on i watched you on jimmy kimmel and you give them that's the affability you're talking about django you give right. that right to them and you seem so present and so okay with yourself oh. and it's it's it <laughs> may not be true but that is my perception <laughs> no I, I, no 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 i think that's actually great 
I've in in uh, really recent weeks and months, I've thought about this for years, but um, I, I've really started to try to understand who is Tazon Day as a character and as a brand, ah. and in what ways is that different than Adam Bonner? Yes, because I see. In many periods of my life, I think I have sort of merged the two. Even to a point mm -hmm. where when I, you know, eventually moved to Los Angeles in October 2008, uh, people wanted to call me Tay. I was like, sure, you know, we're, we're networking on the basis of entertainment, and that's kind of what I'm known for. Uh, call me Tay. Uh, and um, I kind of allowed Adam and Tay to blend together and become the same person. And I didn't have a conscious uh, approach in my in my personal interaction and even in my branding and social media posts. Um to separate Adam from Tazon Day. And I think it was further complicated by uh, the fact that I saw a lot of content creators who came after me, uh, you know, whether they were Viners or, you know, even earlier YouTubers uh, like the, the Shane Dawson's and, uh, uh, and what have you, who ushered in kind of an era of confessional tell-all media where they found success just sharing everything about mm. their thoughts and their lives and being very, very vulnerable uh, and, and, and letting it all hang out uh, figuratively. And there was a part of me that was insecure and frustrated because I wanted to be liked in that way. I wanted to be able to just share all of my mental health journeys, all of my anxieties, all of my fears, all of my difficulties, uh, and, and have that appeal to an audience and have an audience grow and like that and be entertained by it. And I think the reality has always been that Tezande as an experience is understood almost subconsciously as, oh, that's Santa Claus. That's, that's happy. He's a happy singing. He's, he's happy in this grounded, self-affirmed, not even, I mean, the Chocolate Rain video is like found footage. Uh, uh, you know, I always describe it as the Garden of Eden before you know, Eve bit the apple, which I had no idea that this was anything that had any, you know, any legs whatsoever. And, you know, people want to meet uh, or and relive that moment and that person in connection with the Tazon Day brand. So if I start saying, you know, hey, yeah, well, I've had a, a mental health journey with debilitating anxiety and autism spectrum disorder and all these other things, um, it's almost like going to see Santa Claus at the mall. And, you know, yeah, before he goes, ho, 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 he's like, yeah, I just had a divorce and, uh, you know, my, my kids are not talking to me the past week and it's really kind of upsetting me and uh, it's this and, you know, um, but uh, sure, like everybody line up and it's not that you're, it's not that you're mad at Santa Claus for doing that. It's just not why you brought your kids to the mall to kind of sit in the lap and take a picture and have. And yet, and yet, Adam, now, now I want to use your name for a moment. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so human. It's human to uh, be a pioneer and have anxiety human to, uh, go through an incredible experience and have confusion about it. I, I don't know. Do we do we owe as artists, do we owe people what they want of us or do we owe them who we actually are? Ooh, it's that, it's that vulnerable is, and scary. But that is what a good do you question? Um, I, I 
find that I struggle with the who I am aspect uh, just because the way that I articulate my battles or my struggles um, uh, for lack now of you have problem. neurodiversity. Is that oh, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you, uh, you... We, we'll get into that. But you said we could do multiple episodes. I'm like, oh, what, what could I actually talk about an hour? No. Um, but uh, the way that I tend to tell my stories is not necessarily. I don't lead with a climax. I don't lead with a train wreck. I don't lead with the drama. And ah, but but. But you're saying that's a train wreck. I don't see it that way. I see it as an incredible human journey. I'm no bullshit. An incredible human journey. And I find you so resilient where I'm sure I'm sure there are real wrecks who have had to resuscitate themselves from the business. But I don't see that at all. I get it, though. Yeah, just, just real quick, sir. Of point, sorry. I, I think the reason I bring that up because I feel like the plat the social platforms that we are on now they reward train wrecks. They reward yes. Uh, they yes. reward creating a spectacle or hamming yeah. up a certain climax or drama to your experience and speaking in sort of you know, making your life and your experience a bullet points a bullet list of of train wreck highlights and me i'm just kind of more cerebral like ah well let's do a little bit of setup and and nuance and dynamics here uh i interrupted you no not at all no um i i i i understand if the fear is that like once you open the door to that um authentic self maybe that it's just open all the time and 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 am i am i on the right track with that like we 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 had an episode recently where we both talked about traumatic experiences and it drove me insane because i was like oh i that's not part of what i want to be in public initially that that that's the thought i had and then i ultimately decided in the moment like we talked about it beforehand and i said okay i'm 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 not going to i'm not going to talk about my experience but you talk about yours because i'm i'm the type <laughs> of person that 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 doesn't. I I can facilitate the conversation, but I'm I'm not that. And then I did, and it 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 drove me mad to 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 be open in that way, um, just because my fear was that it was the only thing that people would use to identify me in a in a social way. But you know, I mean, here I am now, and I feel better about it. I've gotten a lot of messages about people like being touched by it or, or, or whatever it is. And the truth remains that, I mean, you in that moment have, have created more of a, of a historical moment than all, almost anyone I can imagine. I mean, I think about like, like the, the music that's on the Billboard Top 100 right now. And to be honest, 10 years from now, even 100 years from now, that'll be, you know, mostly largely forgotten but you did something inadvertently or whatever at a moment that that will probably probably be historically valid or or important or relevant for for an incredibly long time and i i don't know i mean i i, I would just challenge that notion that that the 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 idea of adam or tay or uh both uh, or whatever uh can't can't evolve um yeah i i think yeah and, and uh i think part of the challenge 
for me because uh, Twitter is a platform where I've, I've noticed this the most is uh, I, uh, I I used to tweet a lot on the Tazon Day Twitter about like my mental health battles and, and whatnot. And now I think I keep it down to like sort of the summaries or the highlights, the abbreviated version. And I have another Twitter, uh, Tavox, which is not a secret. I'm still saying me, but where that's where I hang out in, in mental health spaces. And, and it's Well, like, that's what I've done. That's, that's exactly yeah. what I've done. Twitter for me is more about um, uh, my career and Star Trek and uh, cooking, stuff like that. And I have an Instagram account called Mama Nana where I speak to people who would be interested in what I've been through and what they can learn from it. And that really, so that you're going, yes, no, I, this is a particular audience. I think that's really important. Yeah, and uh, I'm starting to find, I mean, I, I guess I always knew that I needed to do that, but there was part of me that was stubborn because I would see people who just put it all out there under their public brand, they've reached a point where, yep, I'm, I'm not going to be Jaden Smith. I'm not going to be <laughs> whoever else is just kind of putting uh, whatever is on the top of their noggin. Um, in my case, it actually damages my brand. It damages my business, not because I don't want to share everything, because I, I'll share my traumas. I'll I, like to a fault sometimes, you know, in fact, I, I <laughs> L.A., you know, I lived there 12 and a half years. It's a town where it's very much about networking and you go to events, you go to social events and everyone's kind of uh, has their spiel and their drive by version. Of, oh, yeah, I'm working on this project and I just got off a set with so and so. And everyone's kind of trying to play that game. I, I would totally just you know, be honest and be like, yeah, I'm really struggling. And uh, I had one gig that just got cut and my dad has been paying my rent for the past couple of months. And I'm uh, a little bit frustrated, and a little bit scared. And I would just like blurt it right out. Uh, right. In a totally That's real. Faux pas, faux pas way in yeah. those conversations and this being a, I guess I never knew, really knew how to do it right because I stayed in Minneapolis for about another year after the viral video. Um, uh, you know, attempted to do my PhD prelims, which are kind of the rite of passage from your coursework to doing your dissertation and 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 writing that. And uh, you know, my committee, who is you know the, the the faculty you pick to basically supervise you, uh, was telling me, "Yeah, you're not super super into this anymore." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not." So I escaped with a master's degree after four years of PhD coursework, and then I didn't have anything hanging, uh, you know, t to hold me to. Uh, uh, Minneapolis anymore. Hindsight being twenty twenty, because I moved to LA and spent twelve and a half years there. And if I had, if I knew what I knew now at that time, I probably would have been fine staying in Minnesota. I could have, you know, the housing was cheaper, cost living was cheaper. I could have bought a house and uh, and and in a more isolated place and uh, kind of had my own space and energy. But um, I had been to LA a number of times and. Uh, I think maybe there was a part of me that had a pitter pitter pat dream. There was a sort of a diaspora of YouTubers to Los Angeles during this period of time. People who had come into this unwitting success on this new platform. And at first, there really were not many of us. You met somebody else who had a big YouTube channel or a viral video or who was kind of making a living from uh, ad revenue on YouTube. 
And it was like meeting another astronaut. You know, it, it, it was like it was like meeting somebody from another Apollo mission because none of our families really, really understood what it was. And you could you, there wasn't a common public understanding that it was even a thing. So, uh, you know, I would meet the other early YouTubers like Mr. Guitar Man or, uh, you know, Mr. Safety S&P Films. And, you know, we, there'd be this sort of unreality to it, like, oh, yeah, th th this sort of similar thing happened to you, too. And uh, we all sort of uh, uh, eventually made our way uh, to L.A., um, which is funny because the entertainment industry in 2008 really did not care about me having a viral video. I uh, and, and it's so weird uh, because L.A. eventually changed uh, right. to a place where, you know, by 10 years later in 2018, yeah. the town had, had just developed this fetish, this obsession with social media numbers as this fringe benefit. Uh, you know, it's like, it helped to be talented too, but, you know, they, you were, uh, it, it definitely grew a different priority. L.A., it was interesting. I suppose I moved to L.A., I mean, it was sunny. The weather was nice. The times that I've been out for Kimmel and I did a Weezer music video and a couple other things, it, it seemed nice and different. And like, I'd have to actually live there to get to to know. But it. it's the dream. It's Don't the you dream. think it was the dream? Absolutely. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really I, I was very green. I didn't really understand the entertainment industry. And, uh, you know, I, while I had, had been tapped Heartlead into SAG-AFTRA, you know, through different shows that I'd done, I wasn't I didn't really understand the legacy of what came before and just kind of how the town worked. Uh, and um, it took me six years to get a top voice agent. Uh, it took me, wow, about eight years to get a theatrical agent. Um, and I studied improv and, 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 and did different things um, to kind of, you know, pursue and, and, and try and understand the, the acting craft. But at the same time, I always joke that my acting career is on the friends and family plan. Like I may have, you know, a hundred odd IMDb credits, but it's like it's a, a lot of it is early YouTubers who themselves had moved to L.A. to kind of pursue the entertainment industry. And we were just it. kind of starting to like <laughs> do pictures and short films and projects. It tended to be people who knew who I was and right. knew the puzzle piece of how I would fit into a project that either they wrote or that they conceived. Um, I've rarely been a talent that wins cattle call auditions. I've rarely been somebody like, okay, you know, they bring in 2,000 people and land on me and like, yep, yep, that's, that's the one. Uh, I'm you know. the same way. I've always been the same way through my career. But Tay, did you love acting? Did you go, oh, this is, this is my purpose? Um, here's what's interesting. Like, I love being on a set where I am well cast in something that is well-written and where I am well-directed. And I think that combination of things takes me from being an adequate actor to being able to have amazing magical moments. Uh, yeah. It is certainly- And that's what we live for. Yeah. Those yeah. are what we live for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, it, you know, and, uh, you know, when those moments aren't in alignment, because I've been on those sets a time or two, too, where I am just not, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Not, not not what they're looking for, but you know, they had the job or the gig or whatever. Um, that's why I'm like, yeah, uh, that's uh, uh, painful. Not as frustrating, <laughs> or, not, or not as pleasant. It's more frustrating. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I've also you know 
because I was first diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder when it was called Asperger's back in 1997 when I was 15 years old. Um, but it's not something that I really understood or internalized. And it was only after about 10 years of struggling in L.A., not mm. being as successful as I would like to. I was, I was always success proximate. I would always mention my friend or, uh, you know, colleague, oh, they really made it or they really made it. But um, I was kind of floundering. Um, and uh, it wasn't until I had a great friend who actually ended up becoming a roommate who actually lived with me and having somebody live with me. Um, they saw a lot of the little things and, and they're kind of like, you know, you might consider mental health care and, and resuming a mental health care journey, just saying, just looking at an outside observer. And I was like, OK. Um, and that's when I I really seriously resumed it and got re-diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and, uh, you know, went through about a year of trying different medications and, and arrived at one. But what I've learned uh, is that who I am uh, from a sensory standpoint, uh, you know, it's a fairly specific thing uh, it, Thinking in the context of casting and and be a cattle call audition because you you yeah you know, and this is a great place to bring in Star Trek because uh yeah you know, I I was always a fan of TNG as a kid uh, um uh, I think I really got into it in about fourth grade and actually Deep Space Nine came out when I was in fifth grade but you know there are so many characters and what I love about you know, both series is uh uh it characters who are outliers but kind of play that and have plots written about them whether you know print spider tended to play data and he and data was written sort of as an outlier with perhaps some attributes of autism uh reginald barkley i forget the name of the actor uh who played him on on, on tng but he kind of yeah really leaned into those aspects and, and even these face nine you had there are so many characters who are outliers on that show in terms okay. of you know just not being a you know what Hollywood would call a lead, you know Hollywood has this diversity. Idea. Yeah, uh, you know, it's Hollywood diversity, kind of had... neuro, everything. Absolutely. So you know, characters like Odo or Rom or you know, it, it brought in so many different people uh, who would not, who honestly, not only would not do, be doing a lot of work as leads in Los Angeles and other contexts, uh, but but wrote great. I mean, Armin Shimmerman, like, like, like wrote great plots. Uh, you know, it was it, it had this wonderful capacity to take people who would normally be type actors and allow them to be leads, allow them to have diversity, uh, allow them to have a range of dramatic performances uh, without physically being a lead like a Christian Bale. Because, um, like I say, yeah. Hollywood kind of has this idea that oh, okay, well, a a a leading male is you know five foot eleven to six foot two, and a a a leading female is you know uh, you know five foot seven to five foot nine, and 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 um, yeah. So Tay, let me let me go back to your your neurodiversity. When you discovered what it was, I've got two questions for you. How did it how did it help? to know what was going on and what would you like people to know, know this about me. It'll help both of us. What would you like people to know about autism spectrum disorder? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, what was it like? Um, it, because it was not a like switch uh, flipping a switch. Um, it took a lot of work, a lot of research. Um, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, was not an immediate process. Uh, my you know, the, the mental health care journey that I resumed around the age of 37, so about three years ago. Uh, but I it it was sort of like every week or two, 
I got to unpeel another layer of the onion. And it was almost this archaeological process where suddenly more and more of my past struggles and adversities made sense. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. I'm very sensory sensitive, uh, including when I'm on sets, when I'm around people. I'm, I'm doing this interview in a, a six by eight sound booth because I love it to have it to be in a confined space. Um, uh, you know, I'm sensitive to sound. I'm sensitive to touch. I'm sensitive to uh, sudden um, yeah, sudden changes. Um, my brain experiences all of these things as very heightened, uh, and it's a neurological thing. I'm neurologically sensitive, uh, and uh, yeah, that's kind of challenging uh, when people don't understand that because they'll see me in public. And I would always joke that my, my motif is just being a deer caught in headlights. Uh, that's the, the vibe that I would always present because it'd be like, wow, he seems out of place or he seems uncomfortable. And I'd be at a party or a social media. Can I offer, they'd be, can I offer you a drink? Can I help you? Uh, uh, they, they'd feel bad. They'd want to make me feel at ease. And uh, it's more like, oh, no, I'm, I'm just... Uh, <laughs> This is how I exist in your spaces. Uh, I'm sensory overwhelmed. And uh, yeah, the same case, you know, if I'm auditioning, I'm on a set. Um, there's sort of this question um, in the autistic community in terms of representation now, because you have uh, autistic characters on, you know, shows like The Good Doctor, um, yeah. uh, Atypical on Netflix. Uh, and, you know, they, they generally cast neurotypical people like, you know, Kira Gilchrist, I think he's an amazing actor. Um, uh, Freddie Highmore, uh, another amazing actor, uh, uh, to do these. And, and there are people in the autistic community who are kind of like, eh, it would be great. I mean, it's it's fine that, you know, you're casting that person, but it, it would it be possible to bring somebody who is actually autistic in to play this part. And Have they gone there yet? Have they done it yet anywhere? I don't think so. It's, it's tough. Like, I can see both sides of that um, in all honesty. Um, uh, because on one hand, like, like the public doesn't really see, I mean, they, they see the final shots. They see the final edits of, you know, of what, what's presented, what the dish is. Um, they don't really understand the mechanics of being on a sitcom of how oftentimes the writer ta- writer's table is sending you a new draft of the script every couple of hours because they are rewriting <laughs> the story to fit the needs of the production and the shots that they're actually able to do and you know a lot of it is like you're sitting and waiting in your trailer and you don't know when you know the pink script or the blue script or whatever is going to come in and you're just kind of hoping that, that you're ready and trying to like to, to give what you need so that you're not yelled at amidst the hundred other things that have to go well in the production. Well, Um, that would be a firestorm in my brain. I remember it was a firestorm in my brain, but what would that be like for you? Ooh, um, you know, I think for me, like I enjoyed, you know, the, the the couple times that I've done sitcoms or, or, you know, been a regular guest. Um, uh, I liked that world. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it's it's tough because there there's aspects of me and what my neurological journey is where I truly don't know who I'm going to be from day to day. Um, there is a, it, this is a really obscure thing you can Google, but pathological demand avoidance uh, is something that is uh, sometimes in, in, in some literature connected with autism diagnoses where your your journey with where you are neurologically 
can be so variable that you avoid committing to things. And uh, nothing speaks commitment like being cast to be a regular on a show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they have their budget. Like, like, yeah, they're spending a lot of money. Like, they're, they're putting a lot behind you. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you better not be the cog in the machine that's not uh, delivering. So I think it, it could certainly be done. I think the other, you know, casting in someone who's, who's autistic, um, it's also a little bit challenging because you know, what, what makes you a card carrying person with autism? I mean, I happened to have the luxury to pay for uh, mental health care periods in my life and be redundantly diagnosed by multiple PhDs and a guy who was a, a professor for 35 years and went very much by the book of Western medicine and DSM-5. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily more valid than somebody who self-diagnoses because they're not able to access, uh, you know, there's a, a tremendous difficulty accessing mental health care now. Uh, uh, um, but in terms of if somebody meets me, um, I think... I think just the same things that help if you meet anybody else, just a lot of grace, a lot of patience, a lot of, you know, depending on when you meet me, um, there may be a lot happening that you do not see. I think that's, uh, that's I always try to remind myself of that because I can have a short temper. I can be uh, uh, yeah, not always the most empathetic person if you like uh, when, when that that angst and that hostility starts to ruin me, I also try to remind myself, you know what, maybe this person is being malicious and aggressive, but chances are it's something that has absolutely nothing to do with me. They might be having the worst day in their life. They and there having, it is, really. They might be having a migraine. Uh, maybe they just had a, a medical diagnosis that they're really wrestling with. Maybe they're in bereavement. They just lost a loved one. And like, I have no idea what that person is going through. So uh, if you came here, if for Sunday dinner, you were able to come here, and I hope you are, this is what I take away knowing that you are neurodiverse, because my instinct would be to hug you. And yet that might be way too much for you. And if you said, uh, no, I, I can't do that, I would take it personally. So not taking it personally. Oh, that's that's when, a, oh, that's a perfect example because Los Angeles is the land of the business hug. And like, <laughs> like every uh, every social occasion, oh no, is kind of, I don't do business like, hugs. So, I don't oh, do oh, business well, hugs. Well, I, but I joke real about ones. being the business hug because uh, uh, even people you've met two or three times, like oh my goodness, so great to see you. Like it's like we're old family. Uh, right. Uh, I I generally don't have a problem personally with hugging and with physical contact, but the body energy that I give off before doing it, while I do it, and after doing it, uh, empathic and intuitive people tell me that I give off the energy of somebody who does not want to be touched or does right. not enjoy being touched. And so mm. they'll feel a little bit awkward and weird because I'm inherently an awkward, weird hugger, apparently. Uh, I'm stiff and uh, reserved and, and I don't really seem to know what to do when I do it. So uh, that kind of goes back to there's something with autism called masking, uh, which is when an autistic person tries to not seem autistic and and blend in in uh, more neurotypical spaces. And uh, I do not mask well as a hugger. I <laughs> uh, right. so, so while I don't have any personal 
um, issue with it. Um, you know, I, I remember doing it a lot and people would kind of be like, they, they wouldn't be sure how to read me. Or maybe they'd have that lingering feeling in their head like, oh, wait, he wasn't comfortable with that. That was not that was not the right thing. And I'd be perfectly fine. Uh, the, and and yeah, um, that good to know who I was or how, how my body did it. May I, Tay, may I, I'm from may I New pivot? York. Yes, I want you to. I was just going to say, Tay, I'm from New York, so I've just been interrupting you. And Django is way too polite to do that. I know he's got some oh, things he wanted to ask you. I will just like I'll I let you guys cook. I, I I'll get better. At, I'll get better. At, I'll get better at jumping in here. But um, I you know I so I, I do see that you're in your studio, which is actually really charming. It's lovely. It's a beautiful red color. Um. But but the thing that I noticed was it says music is my nature ah. on the back. Um, do you do you do you 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 must feel that to be true? Do you feel um, like you have a musician's ooh, heart? No, I I've had a lot of inner conflict on that. First of all, uh, that was a great find at Goodwill. Uh, <laughs> yeah, most of the art uh, that I see because I I was I think I was uh, I was donating other stuff to Goodwill, trying to get rid of stuff. Uh, and I was like, uh, I'll just walk around and see what's inside. But I saw that painting. I'm like, oh, what? $7.99 or whatever it was. I was like, absolutely. That seems like it would match. Uh, and yes, it's, it's a great uh, find. It's a beautiful uh, find. I would like to be that person. <laughs> I, would, I would envision being a person who hangs that up and feels like music is my nature. Um, I sing about what I can't say about. When I kind of force myself to be verbal, uh, including having conversations like this, which, I mean, it's wonderful to do podcasts. And, and it's always, there's an aspect of it that is masking. There's an aspect of it where my natural brain is very parallel. There's always 10,000 things happening in my brain. And I'm on ADD medication right now. So like, it's a little bit more manageable, mm. uh, but I'm always having to pick that the single thread and kind of make a choice of what the words are that will come out of my mouth. Like I'm playing a video game. Uh, I'm, I'm playing the video game of talking. I'm playing the video game of being a person speaking in singular sentences and subject verb object and uh, conceptual flow. And that's not naturally how my thoughts happen or how my brain works. And so uh, music often I find comes from a less verbal place. When I am most creative musically, I am least able to speak and I have to be able to allow myself to lose myself in a place where maybe my brain isn't calibrated to speaking. Maybe I'm stammering. Maybe I'm uncertain. Maybe I don't even like you ask me something and I don't even know what the words are, but I know what the song is. And the song is sort of this process of trying to build a rescue, a life raft for myself to connect that space of being nonverbal, you know, a broader world or to something that has meaning. And that's wow. where the song comes from. Well, so you so. said music isn't your nature, but it sounds very much like music is your <laughs> natural state. I'm, I'm, I'm not dissimilar. I, 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 well, I would just say that, that for me, um, playing or, or, or having, having musical creation as an outlet is, is super helpful just in terms of like my, my mom often talks about flow state and I, I, are you familiar with, with what uh, flow state is? 
I, I think I know what you mean by it, but I don't know if I'm familiar with this. When you lose the the the, the consciousness, when you're just in the moment, it kind, kind you lose of, ego. Probably what you were saying about your most creative state, and it's actually to me gotten to a place where I I, I often see it kind of being uh, somewhat maybe it, it has a lot of traits that um, almost addiction could because I I go there and then I it's it's so much so different from what real life is, you know, and it's, it, I feel so much more comfortable in that creative environment. And then sometimes stepping back into real life, I have to be so intentional about, yes. about, about rituals or whatever it may be in order to, to just be present and not, not try and stay in that. My, my mind wants to stay in that place. Yes. So you feel and, that uh, too. Yeah. And, and it's tough. Um, yeah. I think my dream would be able to be able to provide for myself and just kind of make a living, just being in what you're calling a flow state as much as possible. Um, it, it does help me to spend less time posting on social media. And um, yeah, there's, there's something called spoon theory that uh, I think it was made for a, a different condition, but you know, it's applied to a lot of mental health journeys now and, and, and conditions. Um, and, and the idea being that you know, when, I or someone else wakes up in the morning, you only have so many spoons energetically uh, to devote to efforts or to devote to uh, um, you know, whatever you're trying to achieve that day. And I know for, as an autistic person, uh, being verbal and speaking and taking myself out of a flow state to engage the world, either to respond to emails or to post on social media or to have a phone conversation or do whatever, it I can't eats up a lot of my spoons. Yeah, yeah. For I, a given I, day, I'm, and yeah. I have to be very diligent now in allowing myself time to recoup, time to not be spending those spoons. Uh, you know, time to not uh, be quote unquote on uh, because yeah, if I'm uh, you know even just I mean Twitter spaces are audio spaces. People hang up and uh, on on Twitter and. Uh, if I had done four hours of Twitter space this morning, I'd probably be out of spoons by the time I tried to you know, do a podcast like this, which we're doing in the evening. Uh, so I really kind of have to calibrate and plan my days, plan my mental health journey uh, to not. Run I'm the out of same way. I am I'm too. the same way. And what yeah. a what a what a space for empathy, just in how much you must have to do that. I mean, I mean, both of you actually but like it it drives me crazy even with the minimal following i have i i i, I can't it, it's not how my mind works but um but yeah i, I feel for you and i'm sorry i i, I want to be conscientious of your time and and uh we're, we're so grateful to have you but i do have a few questions back Hold up. On. I, and, I and also the spoon for another hour but like you know, <laughs> yeah i don't want to wrap it up whenever you want to don't use i don't, I don't, I don't want to use up too many of your spoons oh well um, i mean I'm, I'm here now so okay <laughs> um <laughs> But but so the move uh, you moved you moved states recently you moved away from California yeah how how has that been for 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 your your mental health ooh that's interesting um because I because I have family in Washington State um yeah, oh, to be around uh, family again yeah the the winters are not as cold as where I grew up in the Midwest uh and and because I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and then I was in graduate school in Minneapolis um uh. 
You know, I don't know because I also moved in, in early 2021. So it's kind of peak pandemic. So mm. that whole experience of changing our social world and the way people interact or don't interact, um, it, it's uh, it's kind of changed the experience of moving to a new city. I have so many friends in Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, the 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 friends I value the most are maybe, you know, the the half dozen friends who kind of became like family. I, I have yeah a, a, a number of friends like that in Los Angeles, and uh, I haven't really built that friendship base out uh, in the Pacific Northwest yet, even though I do have some family here. So it's uh, and how do you do that in this changed world, uh, this this post-COVID, but not exactly post-COVID type world where, you know, everyone's kind of meeting over Skype. You know, social media has become more important now. And uh, these these virtual meetings and in some ways, uh, I do feel like I'm better in video or at least I'm more able to calibrate my life so that I'm at my peak performance uh, when I'm interacting on Zoom or video than in it's real life where there are all of these X factors where it's like, I don't know if it's going to take, you know, two and a half hours to drive from Burbank to Santa Monica. And then am I going to be able to find a parking place and how exa- and will, will something else trigger me? And, and, and then by the time I try and meet somebody in real life, uh, what is going on in my head or, or you know, what variables, whereas in which remote socializing and remote interaction, um, it suits me, but uh, I do miss at least sometimes having clearer avenues towards building human connection and and finding ways to do that as well. And it's uh, you know the jury is still out on that. Yeah, whether whether or not it's the right right decision to have made, or yeah, yeah, I think yeah. whether or not it's the right decision to have made. And I also just kind of. Uh, um, I feel like, I mean, at the age of 40, um, I'm in a situation that I feel like a lot of you know, younger to middle-aged adults are in of like, I have not reproduced the prosperity of my parents if I'm comparing myself to like where they are in lives. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that now. And it, like the positive side of that, because I also feel like I've continued to grow um, I had this idea when I was a child that it's like you turn 21 and that's it's like, no, it's like I, I'm a completely different person at 40 than I was at like 35. Mm. Um, so one positive way to look at that is, hey, you know, 40 is like the new 18, the future, the sky's the limit. Anything can happen. Um, I always, you know, it, uh, especially in terms of my on camera career, uh, yeah, I always felt like my personality lent itself to authority figures like you know, the senator the governor the chief of staff the uh the ceo mm. i look way way too young to play that even at age 40 i'm like you know, yeah yeah i'm so the best is yet like, to come yeah the like, best I'm, is yet to come for you yeah i'm you, you could like you 30, could 30 maybe yeah. 25 like it yeah uh, so uh, yeah, who knows? There might be a second coming. You know, Andy Rooney didn't start doing his 60 Minutes column until he was 58. Uh, and he That's was, right. He was a magazine writer before that. And just like, oh, he, and then he kind of became uh, yeah, a, quite, quite famous and successful. So, so you never know. Uh, but also, also, wait, Adam, Tay, you've you've already done so much. I mean, in, in, in perspective wise, like. All I can dream to do 
is to make a song that a, a million people listen to at some point. You've you've done that and and more. And is that is that any kind of is that any kind of reconciliation? Ooh, that that is a very interesting question. Um because I have never felt and I've received a fair amount of acknowledgement and praise and accolades and you know and an award or two and acknowledgement for my achievements. And by the way, thank you. That was very kind. Um inside of me, I've never been somebody who it's not that I don't take compliments well. It's that sometimes I feel like they are talking about a person whom I have not met and I have to nod and yes, and them like I'm in an improv scene mm. and go along with their perception and not burst their bubble. Mm. Uh, I used to feel like I had to burst their bubble. It's maybe why I said earlier that I would be blunt as attack uh, in social circumstances. Uh, but now it's kind of like, um, like, I'll be honest, I have thoughts of, boy, if I had just uh, yeah, picked a very uh, anti-social career like being an actuary uh, to look at financial stats and spreadsheets or being a radiologist where I could yeah, look at scans all day, uh, where would my life be? I might be, I'd probably be ahead of where I am now financially. I'd be ahead of like feeling confident in knowing where I would be in the future, knowing that I'd be taken care of and well and provided for in the future. Um, these are still questions that um, I have a lot of fundamental questions just about my wellness and my future at the age of 40 now that give me some anxiety, that give me uh, doubt and uncertainty. Uh, and that's the version I often experience, uh, not just when I'm looking in the mirror, but when I'm staring at the ceiling at night. And that's different than the version of me. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, you've, you've had some exposure, you won a Webby Award, or you were on South Park, or what was it like to you know, work with Daniel Tosh, or uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there's- But you're not alone. You're, you're not alone in your generation or the generations to come, or my generation, for feeling that uncertainty. That's part of the global experience right now, for sure. But think of the connections you've made. Think of the people who may not have understood the words they were hearing, but it got in. You were talking about racism. They heard them on, on some level. Those words got in, in terms of connection, in terms of experiences and hearing what you have to say, you've, you've reached a lot of people. I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, we're, we're doing a bit of a one, two punch mom and I today we're like, we we're switching off, but I, 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 I must've first heard uh, that, that particular song when I was uh, 13 and I promise you I'll never in my whole life, forget it. And, and what, it, what a crazy thing, you know? And it's not like, it's just because of the way the internet worked at that moment. I mean, it's also like your your voice is so captivating, and the lyrics were actually really amazing, you know. But, but it, 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 I, what a what a what a what a wonderful thing. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Um, in a lot of ways, even after, I mean, in the initial period of its success, because I did not understand why 
chocolate rain had become successful uh, as it was experiencing success, as, you know, the first weeks of July 2007 is when it really started to blow up. And you know, I did I was doing 30 radio interviews in the course of two weeks. And uh, yeah, most of them understanding it to be a joke. And I've already said that I, I, I decided not to, you know, force a meaning or say, well, this is a ballad about institutional racism. It's interesting because with the George Floyd protests in 2020 and you know, even uh, you know, a little bit before that with the rise of Black Lives Matter as, as a, a, a phrase and, and perhaps movement, um, I did not talk about Chocolate Rain being a ballad about institutional racism for about 10 years until 2017. I did a BET interview uh, where <laughs> I, I, I finally you know, gave my piece on it because I would be, I would be evasive uh, 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 you know, before that because people – they had their own experience of it. They'd like they'd they'd make a joke song about it, be like menstrual pain or whatever, and and and, and sing in front of a bed sheet. And it would be this wonderful <laughs> part of their life and their experience, and just kind of the meme of it being this silly thing. Um, but I had a lot of people randomly messaging me, uh, especially in 2020, uh, saying, "Oh my gosh, I I I went back and listened to this, and I now I get it." You know, I, I was 13 at the time or I was, you know, uh, 10 or I was five years old or whatever age they were. And, and I didn't understand it then. But now it has this deeper meaning. And yeah. um, it's tough because in a lot of ways I have struggled to find that person again. Uh, what I described it as, you know, is Eden before Eve bit the apple. Um, public attention, I think I think it was Quincy Jones uh, who said that, like, it's it's great for some people and it destroys other people. And me, you know, it, I'd probably fall more on, I don't know if it destroyed me, but it was, I'm already a very sensory sensitive person. And so add that to uh, being approached by strangers as I walk down the street, not just in the United States, but, you know, in Toronto, in Berlin, in London, uh, you know, you're that guy who did that video. Uh, oh. Can we take a selfie? I'd I'd love to. Like, and, and yes, I arms kind of, around you. Yeah. Well, well yeah. yeah. And, and I would lean into being gracious and smiling and understanding that that was my life. But um, I've never been a person who felt like I just blended in at any age or any point in my life. Mm. And I think a childhood dream of mine and maybe some loneliness and some aspiration, even when I was a very young kid, was that I would fit in with my peers. Was it just just let me feel like I was normal for a day or two or just uh, able to kind of just uh, be, be like everybody else. And so when worldwide attention just you know, dropped in my lap, uh, there was sort of this, I don't know if it was this morning, but this understanding that that particular dream or that particular aspiration for a version of my life uh, was not as likely to uh, be a part of my future after that. Because I even, I, I stick out, you know, Conan O'Brien jokes that he's like Big Bird. He can't hide it in public. He's just like, and, and I sort of have the same thing, whatever combination of my voice, my mannerisms, how I move, uh, whatever, like, I'm that guy. Uh, whereas I feel like even much more famous people, like, you know, if Madonna's in a hoodie or, you know, uh, Lady Gaga's in, a, uh, in sunglasses and a jogging suit, you, you might not notice that they're behind you in line at the grocery store. Whereas me, I, I, I remember, I, you know, when Chocolate Rain was gone, about a year after, I, was, I had a bike helmet on 
And I was riding by a DHL truck and the driver just rolled the window down. And he's like, chocolate rain. I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> I, I, how I, do these people even take it? I just stick out. I, I have a very specific uh, uh, type of energy. And uh, that was hard for me to wrestle with. I think not being in L.A. helps to some yeah. extent because L.A. is such an inherently transactional town where though people don't state it, they're always operating sort of with this subconscious understanding of what is the transaction of hanging out with you, of being around you, of talking to you, of, of trying to seem like somebody. Uh, I had, to some extent, uh, whatever you would call somebodyness or calling cards dropped in my lap in a very fortunate way. Uh, but I never like I was never able to lean into that because that never felt like it was who I was when I went to a social event in Los Angeles, when I tried to network. I wasn't that type of person who was trying to be like, oh, I was just on a set with Quentin Tarantino or I just worked with that. Mm. Um, I, I, I was never like someone who um, I always just wanted to have a vulnerable conversation to have an honest conversation about uh, yeah, who I was as a human, my fears, my uncertainties. Uh, and uh, I found that very it, it's very rare to run into somebody who wants to have that conversation, especially a sober person who wants to have that conversation. Right. Uh, in, right. In Los Angeles. That ties into the camaraderie of it all as well as like the fact that there are so many people that are have given away their their sort of uh, chance at normality for 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 whatever it is like that 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 I find when I first moved here it was really difficult to get along with people because I assumed that that was what everyone was looking for. And then eventually I, I let go of that. And then the friends I found once I let go of that were, were, as you say, so such true and, and, and perfect friends in a way, because we were all there for an artistic pursuit and we were all there essentially to struggle here to struggle. Um, and, and, and that's part of the beauty of it, but there's so much to, to respond to in what you just said, I, I think like, firstly, uh, putting my my business cap on, I, I hope I can even respond to it all succinctly, because there is so much going on in your world. It's, it's, it's amazing, astounding. I, I, I again, uh, uh, applaud you for, for, for how well, well, you take on something that, that, um, I, I, I can't say many other people have ever had to experience, but what what i what i think about the impression that you made it's so easy to misinterpret it because of south park because of tosh.0 because of all these things uh, that that it was funny but what it really was was captivating and the the reason it was so captivating is because of your voice because of your soul because of who you are and mm -hmm. and and that's the making of a good musician so when you say i think that it 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 hurt me ultimately or 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 you, you put yourself on that end of things I, I i think that there's so much room for you know the phoenix to rise from the ashes in your case because like you say the industry has begun to lean into exactly what you are we've realized that, that you are the potential of all of us. Someone who, who, who's authentic, who has a wonderful voice, 
I, I mean, I, I diverse, diverse, but I, I, Neurodiverse. I also diverse. I, I mean, stand, that's important. I couldn't stand when people, um, like I meet agents or something when I was trying to act and they were like, Oh yeah, you're, you're not white. We, we like that, you know, cause that's, yeah, that's no. when I came up. Uh, um, no, I understand that. But you're, but to you're be yourself. neurodiverse, to be neurodiverse and to stand for so many people, you know, who are, and who can look at you and go, wait a minute. It's okay. We have a lot of people who are neurodiverse who listen to us and I know they're going to go, all right, Look, look at that. I can, I can think these things. Let me just say one thing that I wish I had said that you said, I, I think this is so brilliant. Um, <laughs> I really wish I had said it. I have never liked talking about what I do. If I'm rich from it, it feels like bragging. If I'm poor from it, it feels like begging. If I'm in between, it feels like blabbing. I like to show up and do it. Oh my God. That's amazing. That, 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 that's that could I play, wish I'd said it. That could play behind motivational music, you know, with you speaking. <laughs> you, people. Know, you know who lives the perfect lives right now? Like like my my they're, they're like my superheroes. Um actors who are making a good living and they have no gosh darn social media. Uh, you yeah. try and look up like, oh, where's there, there, where's so and so's Instagram? Where's so and so's? They're not on social media. They, they, they <laughs> just live a life where it's like, hey, <laughs> this is what I do, and and you know, in a lot of ways, like at its height, uh, and this is a, it sounds a little bit weird, but um, in the best moment, the best moments for me on a set, um, I feel more able to be real because the fiction feels more real to me than my actual life. My actual life has come to resemble fiction and fantasy <laughs> in a lot of ways that are just not a typical life where, yeah, there isn't a if someone group, there isn't a, you know, I had an old viral video and I'm extremely recognizable in my voice and the appearance is anonymous. Like there, there, there isn't a lot of uh, uh, camaraderie sometimes or common experiences that I can empathize with people in real life. If someone but, wrote, sorry, fiction. if someone, if someone wrote your mo your life as a movie 10 years ago or 20 years ago, people would have been like, nice. <laughs> what? Don't, this, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> you know? So I, I completely understand that you're living a unique experience. It, it's an interesting time that we live in because in 2007, I feel like it was more possible to just kind of be real to, to be your vulnerable self. And, and the internet was syndicated. You'd upload it and uh, yeah, it, it, it would reach an audience. Whereas now, um, you know, you upload anything to YouTube. Now it's going through the brand safety algorithm, like looking at all of the words that you say, uh, you know, trying to figure out how it slots into, and then show it to only the thinnest slice of people that it predicts are going yes. to uh, be caused to watch more YouTube from having had that shown to them. And it's, it's scary. It's scarily effective at that. Like, like the databases and machine learning, it's scary in how effective it is. I, I just saw an article, um, uh, it's probably still searching on Google News. Um, they put x-rays into a machine learning algorithm uh, and 
it was able to predict which x-rays were x-rays of black people with what 90 percent wow. accuracy the machine what just giving it you know 10,000 20, you know, 50,000 whatever x-rays uh and then having it look at a new x-ray and predict the race of the person and and the the people who created the machine they don't know what the what the you know, other data corroborating data that the machine is looking at to make that determination uh, it's just uh through this machine learning and through the patterns reaching a conclusion and so like these machines that we have syndicating information to us on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, on Instagram that we don't see, we aren't able to lift up the hood and and see what makes that engine tick or um, what it thinks of us, uh, how it tries to go about this task of keeping us on the platform. Um, that's a, like it's a very challenging and and I think in some ways potentially um, unwell circumstance for the species for interaction for mental health and um you know uh, but that's the conversation we need to have hearing yeah. you say that because you know at my that's not where my awareness lives and when you talk about that machines that machine and its capabilities my brain kind of explodes i can't quite get my my thoughts around it it's and yet that's that those are the those are the things I need to be exposed to, and, and, the and things that our, make my brain explode. Absolutely. And that's our double empathy problem, because what makes your brain explode is that that's that's like where my brain is in its natural state uh, most of the time. That's why we and need then, you. And, and, and then when I'm trying to socialize in perhaps more traditional, more neurotypical spaces, that's what's making my brain explode, where I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm at this party with 200 people and none of them are really being honest or vulnerable or confessional or they're just all kind of operating in these things. And uh, that was the funny transition from becoming huh. being a humanities academic to you know, pursuing an entertainment career in Los Angeles is as a humanities academic, uh, you know, we would study all these aspects of power and privilege and economics and cultural history and how our bodies and how the marginalization of our bodies informed and, and connect with power and privilege and opportunity. And yeah, Los Angeles is a town where, uh, you know, it acts on all of those things, but there isn't really a narrative that acknowledges them. Uh, you know, even something as simple as height, uh, you know, you look at statistics, you know, uh, a, a person earns more income for every inch of height. Uh, this is a, a, I've a read standing that. statistic. Uh, I've read halo that. halo effect. Uh, people who are perceived as more attractive, they get lighter court sentences. Uh, they are, they have better job opportunities, just not in entertainment, probably speaking. Um, Los Angeles kind of acts on these things, uh, but there isn't really an acknowledgement or a, or a narrative. Uh, you know, if you talk to people like the Casting Society of America or people who are yeah, they, they gatekeep the human paintbrushes that tell the stories of entertainment. Uh, it's all kind beautifully of beautifully said. But 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 you said something that I want to go back to the marginalization of our bodies. What do you mean by that? Oh oh, I mean I I mean you know it just uh, uh, and and this is very much the history of scientific racism and eugenics and uh, that you know uh, if you are further from an ideal of beauty or success uh then you're I marginalized. see 
I um, so see. Yes. That can, mean, that can mean if you are not able-bodied when the norm is being able-bodied. That can mean if you are shorter uh, when yeah, the norm is being tall. And you can always find exceptions. You can find, you know, uh, Danny DeVito has a great career. And, and that's kind of always the counter argument when you say, well, uh, the entertainment industry discriminates based on people. Look, they'll, they'll cite an example like that. And uh, uh, it, there are always exceptions. But as an academic, and this is where, you know, my brain is naturally living and where it often makes a lot of people's brain explode, is the pattern, is the system. Because uh, we don't see Danny, Danny DeVito doing um, John Wick, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, Danny DeVito doesn't play that, that role to us because we, you know, Hollywood doesn't want us to see that type as the, the leading man. Absolutely. And, and I mean, and, you know, in, in recent years, I mean, there have been cases where, you know, you have the, you know, uh, you know breakthrough world. Like Precious is a great example of a, a film of uh, mm. um, uh, um, uh, my, my dear friend Chrissy Metz, who uh, uh, has a, a great uh, career in, in, in This Is Us, um, you know, uh, uh, where the expectations of Hollywood uh, have, yeah, there, there, there's path breaking that kind of, you know, expands beyond that but at the same time it's also uh it's a it's very very rough and i just remember getting there and i would see and understand all of that very intuitively um youtube had a tremendous uh phase where uh having boyish looks being a, a, a white boy band aesthetic like justin bieber and and in, in embracing that aesthetic got you enormous enormous engagement on the platform huge engagement uh to an extent where uh yeah youtube had those stats and they kind of uh like oh wow there's some lack of representation in top creators um but there wasn't really a deeper dive into hey like what does this say about who we are and why is that the case and um yeah it's uh uh it it's tough um i've ultimately kind of uh i, I i've had to understand for my own wellness and my own mental health uh because i i can always understand and acknowledge that i exist with different marginalizations i'm autistic i'm uh i'm on the shorter side i'm like five foot eight uh uh it's a short for a male in hollywood uh uh but I have to so, sort of suspend my own disbelief and believe that I'm not an alien, believe that I belong, believe that I have a common thread that connects me to other human beings, believe that that is something that can be seen, that can be appreciated, that uh, can be uh, meaningful. And uh, even as there is sometimes evidence to the contrary, and my brain can very much get into the systemic aspects of marginalization and uh, uh, oppression and unfairness and, and take hurtful moments and want to expand those into a larger critique. Um, I've kind of had to learn that I can fall off a cliff there in my own mental health and my own self-actualization to where I just have to Maybe it's a lie. <laughs> Maybe it's not even true of a particular moment, a particular experience, but I have to lie to myself and say, you know what? Uh, I deserve ordinary to be ordinary, to not be alien, to process this in a way where it's like, you know what? Uh, there is a common ground that 
uh, unites my experience, no matter how difficult or challenging it is, uh, to many other experiences. And That's... We might not all know each other. We might not all be in conversation. Uh, yeah, there might be a silent, uh, uh, I don't know, silent majority, but silent constituency that is having this experience that I'm having right now. But that doesn't mean that yeah, we aren't real and common and validated. And uh, I have to, I have to have that faith and have that belief. That's why we I need Adam. Yes. Sorry. That's exactly. why we need you. Not to spend one too many spoons, but let's say you are in L.A. and let's say you agreed to come to Sunday dinner, which I really hope you would. What would be a meal that you would love to have? Ooh, oh, my gosh. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, uh, uh, I like chicken pot pies, generally speaking. Um, they can have dairy if I bring my lactate. Um, I like low sodium. I definitely like I'm, I'm pretty sodium sensitive. Um, mm. uh, I'm also somewhat purine sensitive, so I can't have too much chicken. But usually the amount that's in a chicken pot pie. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not a vegan per se. I, I feel like if I say something like venison and mint jelly, then some of the repliers are going to be like, oh, my gosh, you monster. I can't believe you. <laughs> venison uh, and mint jelly. Is that a good? I've never had that. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, I grew up in the Midwest, so you know, there, there, there's lots of deer hunting in the Midwest. Um, wow. My family wasn't vegan hunting, but there's, there, there is definitely venison around, uh, which is deer meat. Um, uh, well, I, I, for one, look, like, I look forward to the, to the opportunity to have our chicken pot pie or chicken yeah. or venison and mint jelly, whatever it may be that I, 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 it's been so nice to talk to you, Tay. It's really it's been, a pleasure. been amazing. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's thank you for being thank so you. generous. Really and, appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for listening. <laughs>